We're going to continue in our studies in the book of Nehemiah. We've come to chapter 10, but it was a few weeks ago that we were in chapter 9. So just to recap slightly, the children of Israel, those in the remnants that have come back to Jerusalem under the mighty leadership and courage and boldness of Nehemiah, they've finished the project. The walls have been built, worship has been resumed. Strong leadership has led the people back to their God. And there has been a spiritual revival amongst these people. And there is a unity amongst them. And in chapter 9, we've seen that they've come together. They've come together, they've cleaved together. That's mentioned in chapter 10 again. And they've come before their God, true, God-honoring religion, God-fearing religion, has resumed. The word religion is a bit of a misnomer. I think religion is really what we do. Christianity is about what Christ has done, not what we do. And what happens here in this chapter and chapter 10, which we consider is the Lord works amongst his people and he turns their hearts so that they cleave together, so that they're stirred up and they desire to be before him with no falseness. So often we come and we act before God. We're not sincere. We don't worship aright. We don't lay all our sin before him as Isaac Watts has just told us, we would lay our sin and complaint if only we knew the secret place of the Most High. And this people have come to that place. They've come into the presence of the Almighty. Well, just to recap, there's three elements of this real zeal for the Lord, this sincerity and this truth where the work of the Spirit is in the heart. Just to remind you, verse 2 of chapter 9, there is an essential separation. Verse 2, the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers. When we read this, it sounds wrong. It sounds like a form of apartheid, a form of discrimination. Why should one race split from another. The whole of the word of God is against that. Ah, but no. This is for the sake of Christ. This is because from the seed, notice verse 2, and the seed of Israel, not just the Israelites, but the promised line, the seed of Israel, decided that they would go back to what should always have been the case. They should have kept themselves from mixed marriages. Marriages which were not right before God. They were not in the Lord. Mixed marriages where idolatry was brought in to the nation of Israel, as is so abundantly clear in the whole history of Israel. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers. The people of God are always to be set apart, consecrated, 
but never isolated. That's a mistake that people make. Yes, separate, consecrated, but not hermits, not Amish, not monkish. We are to be in the world, but not of it. Separated, but not isolated. We are to be salt and light. We're to be amongst the people, but not of the people. So that's the first thing. Separation was essential. This wasn't holier than thou. This was so that Christ would come, the promised Saviour, through the promised seed. And that's what's being done here. Secondly, in verse 2, what do they do? And they confess their sins and the iniquities of their fathers, not just this generation, but the multiple generations that have gone before them, that put them in that mess. They confess nationally. Remember, this is the figurative church in embryonic form. And they come before God and they confess their sin. They need to be right with God. And they need to be right with one another. Yes, sin was the big issue. It always is. Sin is what stops us from being united in marriage, in the church, It's what stops us from being before God one and close. Sin is the issue. They confessed their sin. That's the second thing. And we have to do it regularly. Not just on the Lord's day. Whenever we feel our sin. Watts mentioned it again in that hymn. Whenever we feel our sin, we keep short accounts with our God. And we confess it. We are weak. We fall often, and we confess often before our God. Verse 3, the third characteristic of this revival of the true work of God in their heart. And they stood in their place. This is true worship, always a characteristic of the man and woman or child that's right before God. They stood in their place and read the word of God. Oh, it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? I heard a preacher over the holidays and it really struck me. He said, when the children of Israel looked out over Jerusalem, there was towering over the city, the temple. The temple stood for three things, three words. They all end in D. Helpful to remember. The first thing was gold, gold, gold everywhere, lavishly. That's the glory of God. The second thing, there was blood, blood, blood everywhere. Speaking of the need of atonement and washing and forgiveness. And thirdly, you worshipped in the temple the word The Word, the Word was everywhere. They read it, and that's what we have here in verse 3. They read it one-fourth part of the day. I don't know whether that's the 12 hours of daylight, probably. So three hours, probably rather than six hours, a quarter of the day. But it was a long time. You could read most of the first five books 
that they had in the scrolls in those three to six hours, probably three. That's the basis of true worship. We always read the word of God when we gather together if we can. What did they do then? Confessed. Confessions mentioned again. And they worshipped the Lord their God. What's true worship? God's word, confession of sin, and drawing near to God in truth and in sincerity. Well, that's just a reminder. But we come to chapter 10. And here we have one of those lists of names. We won't go through the list. We'll just mention a few things. But we notice that this is a covenant people. They have struck a covenant. Let's read verse 38 again of chapter 9. And because of all this, what does that mean? Because of all the sin that they've rehearsed before God in this great prayer, we touched on a lot of the elements last time, because of all this, the wretched history of the children of Israel who not once but twice were nationally in captivity in Egypt and then of late in Babylon because of all this. What do they do? They gather together. Look at this turn of phrase. It's beautiful. We make a sure covenant. The word covenant is implied. It's in italics in the King James Version. And write it. And our princes, Levites, and priests seal unto it. It literally was written down. It was another scroll. And the list of the names representing the priests, the Levites, and the princes are recorded. Not every name could be put there. There was probably 50,000 or more by now. But those representing the people are recorded. And what they're signing up to is also written, we have a seal as a church, 1832, you can see it in the vestry. There it is, mounted, stamped in wax. That's what this is here. It's a declaration. I came across this phrase this afternoon, I rather like it. I should have chosen this as my subject tonight. A declaration of dependence. Not independence. That's what the unbeliever signs in blood. I don't need God. I don't need that man to rule over me. I don't need his word. I don't need his hand. I don't need his guidance. I don't need the church. I don't need the word of God daily. I don't need prayer. Does that sound like any of us? Backslidden? Depending upon other things, helps instead of God. Well, this is a declaration of dependence. You know what it means, younger people? A declaration of independence is what many of those old Commonwealth countries said, probably rightly. We don't want to be ruled by Britain anymore. We want to have our own taxes and our own rules and 
We want to go our own way. But this is the opposite here. A declaration of dependence. We've come to the beginning of another year, so to speak, in the church calendar. Can you make this pledge tonight? Will you depend upon the Lord tomorrow, this coming year? Or will you skip reading the Word of God? Skip the prayer meeting? Cut corners, shortcuts? Let's look at what they do here and reinforce the point. This is what the whole of chapter 10 is about this sure covenant, written down, sealed, witnessed, attested. Who's the first one to sign it? Nehemiah. Stand up, Nehemiah. That's not a surprise, is it? He puts his name. He's the one that the Lord moved in his heart. He's the first signatory. I think it's a mark of respect and stature because he's a governor underneath Artaxerxes, but he's also the man who's bold. He'll go forward. Me first, but not me. Me before the Lord. To put my name, to seal my name, as making this pledge, this renewal of our covenant pledges. Nehemiah, the governor, that's what Tershatha means, and you see the other names on the list. We won't go through them. There's some gems there, but it would be a study all of its own. Go down to verse 28. And the rest of the people, everybody's included. The priests, the Levites, the porters, people that had a temple responsibility at the temple of worship, the singers also had a responsibility. And all they that separated themselves from the people of the lands, the people who are going to make this pledge, I'm for God, I'm for purity, I'm for holiness, I'm consecrated for the Lord, I don't want to walk that way anymore. By his help, by his strength, I will be dependent upon him. Notice here, their wives. I've said this before, I like to see it and note it. What an exalted position the word of God gives to women. Never believe the lie that says in ancient times women were pushed down. Who signs? Men and women equally. Equal position in this covenant. It was only how many years? A hundred, hundred and ten? That the women got the vote? In Nehemiah, the women signed the covenant. They were the church members of the day that said, we stand equally together for the Lord. Yes, different roles, different responsibilities, fitting the different gifts and sensitivities that in general we have. There are exceptions, but look at it here. Their wives. Oh no, not just the wives. Their daughters. Their sons. Who? 
Everyone having understanding. I don't know what that means. Three, four years old, 12, 21, you can pick an age, but they knew what they were doing. Everybody that signed, it says, verse 28, everyone having understanding and having knowledge. It's quite specific. The parents didn't say, sign here. No, the children knew what they were doing. We're for God. We're not going back to Babylon. We're not going the way that we were. We're for God. But look at verse 29. There's a lovely phrase here. They clave to their brethren. They call the nobles, the priests, the Levites, a family term. Most societies have a hierarchy, don't they? Not the Church of Christ. We're brothers, we're sisters. Our brethren. It's quite specific. It's the familial term there. We're all one. We've all signed. Brothers, sisters, sons, daughters, husbands, wives, everyone having an understanding and a knowledge. And they clave. That's New Testament language, isn't it? The word clave means united. They were drawn one to another to do the things of God together. There was a paper width only between them. They clave to their brethren. As they sign, they're saying no difference between us. What's good for you is good for me. We sign up together. The New Testament says it's the 11th commandment, isn't it? You know there are 11, not 10. I command you to love one another. Easy to forget that. Regardless of whether we like one another, we're to cleave and to love the brethren. Well, this was voluntary. Nobody is forced. Nobody is told to sign this covenant and declaration. They sign it voluntarily. They had understanding they had knowledge. They clave to their brethren. Well, look at verse 29. What are they signing up to? What's the, what's the small print? Is it like those contracts that we sign? You get a mobile phone nowadays, a new contract for two, three years, and they seem to send you half a dozen emails. And the print, if you read it all, I think it would take you a long time. Well, what do they sign up for here? It's called a curse. That's an old-fashioned word for a promise, a pledge, a covenant, an oath. Here it is. Number one, to walk in God's law. You don't walk in God's law like that. That's daily, hourly. It's the ongoing word. To walk in God's law from now on. Secondly, it describes what sort of law it is, the law that was given to Moses, the servant of God, and the second statement, 
to observe and to do, walk, observe, do. Three verbs, ongoing. Not did, not kept, but walk, observe, and to do all the commandments of the Lord our God, his judgments and his statutes. Those words mean slightly different things to give aspects of God's law, but more specifically, verse 30, what does that mean? What are the particular aspects of God's law that they will observe, keep, do, and follow? Ah, no mixed marriages. Isn't it interesting? The first thing that's called out is the definition of biblical marriage between a man and a woman. In our church, in the Christian life, it's a man and a woman in the fear of God who are walking equally yoked before the Lord. What had happened, and it was one of the first things that came in that led to this declension, was mixed marriages. The first thing they pledge, specifically, is no more mixed marriages. No male and male marriage. No mixed marriage. Well, there's a second thing, verse 31. I think these are significant. They're being called out. Not just the general law, but these several things specifically. Verse 31, here's the second. The Lord's Day, the Sabbath. There's not to be trading, commerce. There's not to be buying, there's not to be selling. It's not necessary. We have people in this church that have to work on the Lord's Day out of duty to care, to protect. But you don't have to sell on the Lord's Day. You don't have to buy on the holy day. We call, as it says in Isaiah, we call the Sabbath a delight. It's a gift. It's precious. And it had clearly slipped in those bygone days. Marriage will be kept. The Lord's day will be kept. And that we would leave the seventh year. Here's the third thing. They'd started lending money to one another, charging interest. And in the Old Testament Levitical law, as a mark of the grace and the mercy of Christ, figuratively, in the seventh year, the debts were cancelled. From now on, that practice will be resumed. Then verse 32, here's a fourth one. What about our giving? Our giving to the service of the house of our God. Again, a delightful term. They were to bring tithes. A special yearly tithe that was for the upkeep of the house of God so that it could be kept and preserved. That's why the temple got into ruin. Because the people had not kept that specific law and commandment. And then we have a whole series of reminders. I just pick out a few of them. Verse 35, and to bring the first fruits. This people were to be a people given to God. What do we take out of all of these 
reminders of the Levitical law, their very best was to be for God. The first fruit. The first wood, wine, oil. The trees were to be given. The first fruits, the herds, the cattle. Oh, it's all there. It's an agrarian society. They're giving their very best. The first harvest goes out, the combine harvester of the day. They don't know whether the rest of the crop will be spoiled. But they give their first. And they put their faith in God that there will be nine-tenths for to get through the winter till the next season. They give their first. Do we give our best? Or do we give what's left? Do we give our best time, first time of the day, whenever it is in your body clock, your freshest time, best time of the day, the first fruit, the most awake, alert time, the Lord's day, the first day of the week, for God, they bring their first fruits. Verse 36, they're to bring their sons but I don't know whether I'll have another son. We bring our first child. We dedicate him to the Lord. Pictured in Samuel being brought to Eli in those years gone by. They had to bring their bread. They had to bring the olive oil, a peace offering. They had to bring the animals to make atonement. It's all there. Wonderful pictures of Christ. But I want to go down to the very final phrase of the whole chapter. We could spend so much more time. Verse 39. They've signed up. This declaration of dependence has been signed as it were in blood. It was probably wax, not blood, but it has the same meaning. All that's gone by, we put behind us the backsliding, the slipping, the shortcuts, and the 70 years of captivity, of wasted years, a whole generation that had probably been born and died in captivity. But now, in view of all that, we now sign up to the Declaration of Dependence, and here is what they say in one phrase. We will not forsake the house of our God. It's not about the bricks and the wall and the building. It's about the worship, the confession of sin, the reading of God's word. That's a true work of God in the heart. Do you know that? Have you ever come to that position where you say, If ever I love thee, O Lord, it is now. Once it was all about me. It was a selfish life. I was the picture. I was the one looking in the mirror of my life. Not now. 
It's about Christ. It's him, it's his word, it's his ways, it's his kingdom. It's the first fruits. This is what they're doing. Can we pledge tonight that declaration of dependence, total dependence, anything else is hypocrisy. Anything else is half-hearted. Anything else is to say some of self and some of Christ. That's not what they're signing up for. We will not forsake the house of our God. That's to me the key verse of the chapter. The other phrase, we looked at it, they clave to one another. They needed each other. They signed up together. Oh, how we need each other. We're weak. We need to care, to support, to look out for one another. May we make this pledge. Do you remember the pledges that we've spoken of before? This was the pledges of Keech 300 years ago. He made these in 1689, the same year of the Baptist Confession of Faith. He said these things, I will walk in all holiness, godliness, humility, and brotherly love. I'm shortening it. Secondly, I will watch over each other's conversation, manner of life, to stir one another up to love and good works. Thirdly, I will pray for one another, for his glory, for the presence of God, for an outpouring of his spirit. Fourthly, I promise to bear one another's burdens. Fifthly, to put up and bear with one another's weaknesses, failings, infirmities, with a tenderness, quaint language, not discovering them to anyone else, not amplifying somebody's weaknesses and failings, but hiding them and praying for them. Sixthly, striving together for the truth of the gospel and the purity of God's ways and ordinances to avoid causes and causers of strife. And then finally, to meet together on Lord's days and all other times as the Lord gives opportunities. Keach made everybody sign up with a signature to those seven and one more pledge, which was about communicating with the pastor of the church. In his church, you couldn't become a member unless you pledged those eight pledges. And the church was reminded once a year of every one of those pledges. Can we do that? We won't keep them because we're weak. And we have to re-pledge and re-pledge. We do it every Lord's Day. We make our vows unto the Lord. And tonight, can we make that declaration of dependence upon him?